Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to read from uh, Luke's Gospel. I'm reading from Luke chapter 3 and beginning at verse 15. And today we think about the baptism of Jesus. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all. I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You're my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now John himself, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we would hear your voice this morning, that you would speak to us and encourage us and challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. St. Giles is an Anglican church. We're part of the Church of England, and as part of that Anglican identity, one of the things that we do is from at different times of the year we follow the lectionary. Uh, set readings for different Sundays. Each Sunday marks a, a different element in um, uh, either Jesus' life or in the church's thinking about Jesus' life. And this morning is the feast of the baptism of Jesus, where each year we have this reading or a reading from another gospel that speaks of the baptism of Jesus. And it comes uh, straight after uh, last Sunday, which was Epiphany Sunday, uh, where we thought of the Magi, the wise men, the three kings, uh, coming uh, to Jesus and bringing gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, that event happened, we think, when Jesus was around uh, two years old. So not quite the Christmas card picture with the, the, the wise men and the shepherds in the stable together. That was a kind of uh, later event. So about when Jesus was about two years old. And here we have uh, Jesus, age 30, being baptised. So in our church year, in our church calendar, uh, we've gone seven days, but in Jesus's life, we've gone 28 years, which kind of raises the question, well, what happened in those 28 years? What happened in the vast majority of Jesus's life? Well, theologians refer to those years as the hidden years, because that part of Jesus's life is hidden from us. As you read through the Gospels, you discover, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that as you read Jesus' life, there's lots about his birth. Then there's his baptism, 
which marks the beginning of his public ministries, his healing, his deliverance, his uh, preaching, his miracle working. Then you've got his death. There's lots about his death. Then you've got his resurrection. But from age 2 to 30, 28 years, there's just one story. And that's the story of Jesus when he's age 12. He goes missing from his parents. They're on a, a visit to Jerusalem. They lose him. They can't find him as they're heading back home. And then they find him in the temple courts. And he's uh, uh, arguing with the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's uh, discussing uh, God's word with them. And they say, nobody has ever taught like this young lad. He's only 12 years old. Nobody's got authority like this young lad. Who is he? Where are his parents? Uh, we've never heard anybody uh, preach or speak like this. So what was happening for those 28 years? What was happening in those hidden years? Well, Jesus was learning in the temple and he was challenging teachers in the temple and he was meditating on God's word and he was uh, imbibing uh, it into him. We knew he was a carpenter and that his father was a carpenter, so he would have been apprenticed in Joseph's workshop. He would have learnt his trade alongside his father, learnt how to use all the tools, deal with customers, order supplies, do all that sort of stuff. And then we think that Joseph died while Jesus was quite young, because there's no reference to Joseph after the early years of Jesus. And when Jesus dies upon the cross, you'll remember that he entrusts Mary to, his, to John, his disciple, his friend, and says, look after my mother, which suggests that Joseph isn't around. So as the eldest of his brothers and sisters, at some point, Jesus would have taken on the family responsibilities. He'd have had to learn to look after his mother, to discipline his brothers and sisters, to budget for the family, to uh, care for those uh, closest to him. So all this would have been happening in those 28 years. And through that time of learning and growing and um, uh, developing as a young man, uh, God the Father was at work in Jesus' life, preparing him for what was to come, shaping him, moulding him, turning him into the young man that he would need to be for the ministry that he was called to. I imagine Jesus' ministry would have looked uh, very different if his ministry had began when he was 15. My 15-year-old is anything to go by. I imagine his ministry would look very different at 19, as my 19-year-old is anything to go by. But he bursts onto the stage aged 30, fully formed, if you like. And so the first thing I want to say this morning is don't despise uh, the hidden years. Don't despise those times, perhaps in your life or our church's life or your family's life, where you're not really sure what God is doing. You can't see where God is at work. Nothing spectacular is happening. You're just getting on with the day-to-day, everyday, Monday-to-Friday life that we all live. God is at work in those hidden years, as much as he's at work in the public years of public ministry. Training, preparing, uh, shaping. Don't despise uh, the hidden years. 
But then we come to Jesus' baptism, and there's sort of three motifs I want to just think about this morning as we look at what's happening as Jesus is baptised. The first is the motif of identification. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. What is baptism? Baptism is a symbol of repentance, a symbol of a new start. What happens is you go to the river, or certainly in John's day, you go to the river. Uh, John, who's the Baptist, the baptizer, would encourage you to come. He would uh, preach to the crowds. He would preach a message of uh, repentance and faith, a message of preparation, basically saying, get yourselves ready. Get yourselves ready for the Messiah, the coming King. God's anointed is coming. Get yourself ready. Sort your life out. Put things right in your hearts before God. Confess your sins and turn to him. The people would do that, and then as a mark of that, a sign of doing that, the kind of total commitment to change that they were making, they would go down into the river and they would be baptised. And they would, go, they would go under the water, and then they would come up out of the water. And that signified a a change, a a death and a resurrection, if you like, dying to self and then being risen uh, to a new life with God. And that's why people were baptised, to wash away their sins, to wash away the things that they were ashamed of, embarrassed about, uh, to put away the things that they knew offended God. So the crowd are there and they're repenting of their sins and John's preaching and they're being baptised and they're coming out of the water and there's great joy. And then Jesus walks forward and Jesus makes to be baptised. In another gospel, uh, we read that John says to Jesus, who am I uh, to baptise you? You should be baptising me. And Jesus insists that he is baptised. But Jesus has no sins to confess. Jesus has lived a life of perfect holiness in those hidden years. Jesus is the sinless son of God. He has nothing to turn away from. Jesus has lived a life that pleases his heavenly father perfectly. John says, I baptise with water, but the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptise with water, but he will baptise with God's Holy Spirit. I'm doing a ritual that symbolises change, but, but the Messiah, the Anointed One, he will do the reality. He will make permanent changes in people's lives. He will enable a perfect permanent change. He will birth new life in his followers. Jesus is the last person who needs to be baptised. And he comes forward and is baptised with the crowd. And he doesn't do this because he needs to do this. In fact, God doesn't do anything because he needs to. There's nothing greater than God. There's nothing that constrains God. There's, there's no force in the universe that can compel God to do anything. Anything that God has to act in accord with is in accord with his own nature of perfect love and perfect goodness and perfect holiness. So Jesus doesn't need to be baptised as we need to be baptised. Jesus doesn't need to repent as we need uh, to repent. 
Jesus chooses to be baptised because he chooses to be identified with us. Chooses to, be, to identify with his people. In fact, if you take the motif of identification, you can apply it to every element of Jesus' life. Think of the incarnation, the Messiah being born in a manger, in a stable, in humble circumstances. What is that but the God of heaven coming and identifying with his people, being born among us, being the child of a virgin, being found in a manger, in a humble stable. Uh, The great themes of Christmas, which we've preached again this last uh, year. Emmanuel, God with us. Think of his baptism. Think of the cross. Most of the Gospels talk about the cross. What is that but God identifying with us in our sinfulness? We will all die. And Jesus dies. He dies and rises again, that we might rise again in him. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who had no sin became sin for us on the cross, and as he died, the power of sin and the guilt of sin died with him. Identifies with us in the cross. Identifies with us in the resurrection. He rises that we might rise. He, he uh, displays the new life that is available uh, to all and through which all creation will one day be renewed in his resurrection. That theme of identification runs through Jesus' life, runs through uh, the scriptures. And even as the ascended Christ, he still identifies for us. He intercedes for his people. Think of Saul on the Damascus Road, the great persecutor of the church. He's dazzled by a light and he says, who are you to the light? And a voice replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And who is Saul persecuting? those first Christians, those first followers of Jesus. To touch them is to touch him. Jesus identifies fully with us. And that should give us hope and that should give us encouragement. Because that means that Jesus wants to be close to us. And it means there's no place we can go from him. There's no place that we can hide from him. There's no darkness so bright that his light cannot shine. There's no depth too deep that his love cannot reach. He identifies with us in his baptism just as he identifies with us in all things. So one lens is the lens of identification. The other lens is the lens of empowerment. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus is baptised, and then we read, As he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. As Christians, we are Trinitarians. We believe in one God in three persons, 
One theologian was once asked, how does this work? Is God one or three? And he replied, I don't pretend to understand the mathematics of heaven. And I think that's a, that's a good answer. But we worship a God who is one and yet three. And we see the three persons united in his baptism. God the Son is baptised. God the Father speaks from heaven. And God the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And there's one little detail here in Luke's Gospel that's not there in the other Gospels. The, gospel, the, the baptism is described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's referenced um, in John. But there's one detail that's different or extra in Luke's gospel. The other accounts speak of the Holy Spirit coming as a dove, but it's only Luke who records that as Jesus was praying, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water. He prays and God's spirit descends upon him. Do you long for a spirit-filled life? One of the things I've been doing over the last uh, week or so is we've been sort of thinking about our move and getting things ready for the, for the new year and our new house move and all of that stuff is uh, going through my books. I have, I have hundreds, possibly thousands of books. I'm working through those. I've discovered I've got lots of books on the spirit-filled life which means I haven't quite cracked it yet. Because each time I think I've cracked it, I think, no, I'm not there yet. need to get another book. need to learn a little bit more. Do you long for a spirit-filled life? A life of closeness with God? A life where you know the grace of God and the power of God and the truth of God at work in your life and in the lives of those that you love? Each of those books describe in different ways how you can enter into the spirit of filled life. How does Jesus enter into the spirit filled life? As he prayed, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form, in bodily form, like a dove. That motif is there throughout the book of Acts as you read the story of the early church. As they live the spirit-filled life as a church together. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1. They all joined together constantly in prayer. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4, the first um, prayer meeting. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God longs to fill us, to empower us, to change us, to um, give us strength, to give us a a power in witnessing, a boldness, uh, to develop his fruit within us, give us a humility and grace and patience and self-control. In short, God longs for us to be more like Jesus, to be full of God's grace and his truth, uh, to demonstrate his mercy. He longs for us to have a spirit-filled life. And it began for Jesus with prayer. And it began for the Holy Church, the early church with prayer. And there'll be no shortcuts for us either. It will begin with prayer, uh, however many books uh, we read. And notice that Jesus needed to be empowered 
by the Spirit. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes that great uh, hymn of praise to God and uh, describes what happens in the incarnation. And it says that the, the, the word, the Son of God, emptied himself and became as nothing, uh, being found in the form of a man. And that describes the Son of God being born as a man, uh, being Jesus, the babe born in a manger. And it describes him as emptying himself. And what does he empty himself of? Well, he remains God, but he gives up many of the attributes of being God. He remains in very nature God, but, but the sort of secondary things that come with that. Um, omniscience, being everywhere, knowing everything, being all-powerful. Jesus gives up all of that, or the Son gives up all of that as he's born as Jesus. So Jesus is weak and he's vulnerable. And when he does his miracles, he says, I can do these through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power that I have in myself within me. He too is dependent upon the third person of the Trinity as we are. So if Jesus needs the empowering and the filling of the Spirit, how much more uh, do we? motif of identification, the motif of empowerment, and thirdly, the motif of affirmation. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I'm a father, I have two sons, one daughter, there are no more words more powerful as a father that you can speak to your children than these words. You're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, I'm pleased with you. Those are words we long to hear as children of whatever age we might be. Those are words it's a delight to share as parents of whatever age uh, we might be. Jesus knew who he was. In the temple courts, I think he was probably discovering, realising who he was at 12, 13 years old. Certainly as a young man, as 30, he knows who he is. The father declares at his baptism who he is. There's an affirmation there. An affirmation of who Jesus is, an affirmation that we need to hear ourselves as children, as sons and daughters of the living God. There are two other occasions in Jesus' life where the, the Father in heaven speaks. The one is at his transfiguration where his glory is revealed on the, on the mountain. He's, he's shining white and uh, others, those who are with him, um, two disciples, Peter and John, who go up the mountain with him, uh, see his glory. And there the Father says, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. So it's a word for the disciples, listen to Jesus. The other is in Jesus' final week, uh, the week that he's betrayed, the week that he will die. John chapter 12, we see he's praying in the temple courts. And he prays, Father, glorify your name. And we read, God's voice thundered, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A reference there to Jesus' death, and his resurrection. 
those four words for others, but this is a word for Jesus, a word addressed to Jesus. You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. Jesus knew who he was. He told people who he was time and again. I am the Father, I one, he said. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world, and so on and so forth. And he asked people who they thought he was. He said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do the, who do the crowd, who are those folk over there, who do they say I am? And then he narrowed it in and he said to them, who do you say I am? And they said to one another, after some of his miracles, who is this man? It's the most important question that any of us can ever ask. It's the most important question that we need to find an answer for. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus for us? Who is Jesus for the world? At his baptism, we hear God's, the Father's answer to that question. So three things flow from this for us this morning. Identification. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. Jesus chooses to identify with us. It's not that we chose him, but that he chose us. That we were far off, but he has drawn near. And we can delight in that and take confidence from that. Empowerment. Where does the spirit-filled life begin? Well, it begins with prayer. Began with prayer for Jesus, and it will begin with prayer for us too. Finally, affirmation. Who is this man? What's your answer to that question? And if you know the answer to that question, if Jesus is your Lord, your master, your friend, your rock, your light, do you know who you are in Christ, who you are in him, who you are by virtue of knowing him? Have you heard that witness in your spirit, uh, that whisper, that still small voice uh, that assures us of God's love and grace and favour, uh, just as the Lord Jesus was assured of that for him? That whisper that says, you are my son, my daughter. You are someone who I love. And I am pleased to have you as part of my family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his baptism, which we remember and reflect on today. And Lord, we thank you for these truths. And Lord, I pray that you would seal them in our hearts. Lord, we, you know what each of us needs to hear uh, this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd meet with each of us at our point of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.